day that you have given to us. Thank you for every day of life. Thank you for life eternal, which you offer to us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love so much. And Lord, help us to get to know him better through this study. Even though it's a study on the book of Genesis, where you wouldn't expect to find Jesus, of course, he's on every page. And we pray, Lord, that we will see that because he truly is the author and the subject of the scripture. And may we be careful in every lesson that we teach to always elevate him and lift him up, because if he's lifted up, he will draw all men to him. And Father, in this lesson, which is a difficult one on the temptation of Eve, I pray that you would help us to see how we might resist temptation in our own lives, because of course temptation is out there everywhere. Help us, Lord, to learn how to resist the devil so that he will flee from us and neither give place to the devil. And so I ask that you go before me today and help to hide me behind the Lord Jesus Christ and your scripture and help the Holy Spirit to um, just have his way and his will in every life that is here. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When God was finished with his works of creation, he declared everything to be, say it together, very good. There was absolutely nothing in the heavens or on earth which was not excellent, which was not very excellent and not perfect, you know, wasn't perfect. And there was therefore no confusion, no chaos, no pain, no suffering, no disharmony, no disease, no death, no struggle for survival, and of course no sin. However, as you and I look around our world today, what do we see? Everywhere everywhere <laughs> we see exactly these things that I just listed uh, we see confusion chaos pain suffering murders wars crime uh, things you see up here abortions materialism disease death struggle for survival sin and we see um, disharmony of every kind and evils of every type imaginable are taking uh, place at an ever-increasing level. Evil men are definitely, what, waxing worse and worse. So when we consider mankind in general and our individual selves in particular, we find that it is far easier to do wrong than it is to do right, and that it is far less of a struggle to drift downward than it is to climb upward. So what has happened to this very good world which God originally created? What happened to the very good humanity that God originally created? How did the existence of evil come to be such a problem in a universe created by a holy and a loving God? Well, we have the answers for those questions, where evil came from and why everything is such a mess. The answer is presented to us in Genesis chapter 3. Actually, in this chapter, which is often referred to as the seed plot of the Bible, we will find the foundation for many of the basic doctrines of our Christian faith. If the third chapter of the book of Genesis was missing from our Bible, and you finished reading chapter 2 after woman was created and Adam and Eve were married and every God declared everything to be very good, and then you jumped over to chapter 4 because there was no chapter 3, you'd read immediately about Cain killing his brother Abel. And you'd be left asking all kinds of questions. So chapter 3 is very, very critical to the scripture. We would not have our Bible as we know it without chapter 3. 
And why is that? It's because the remainder of the scripture is the record of the consequences of man's fall into sin. And also what God in his grace and his mercy planned and accomplished in order to redeem man from his fall into sin. If the fall did not literally occur as we read of it in chapter 3, then our whole Christian faith is built on a myth. And the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, then died, suffered and died needlessly, didn't he? If our faith is built on a myth that we fell into sin and we need a Savior to save us from sin, he died needlessly. So chapter 3, which gives to us temptation of man, the fall of man, and then the judgment of man, is what, what the rest of the Bible is all about. So it's the fall, then, of our first parents which provides for us the answer to the presence of sin in this world in which we find ourselves and for the presence of evil and death. No one can ever really understand human nature without taking into consideration the most basic law of humanity, which is the law of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, we find the beginning of it all. The biblical record of the fall is the only possible explanation for the condition in which the human race finds itself. It gives us the only adequate explanation for the universal principle of sin. There is no world empire which has ever existed. There is no nation, large or small, no city, no family, no individual person who is free from this disease, the disease of sin. If men reject the Bible's explanation for this truth that sin is exist, exists and it's everywhere and it's in every person, they will find absolutely no satisfactory answer anywhere else. However, if they do accept the Bible's explanation for sin, then they will understand that sin, yes, is universal because all mankind shares a common ancestry. In Adam, all die. The scripture says, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Our sin nature is inherited from our first father, Adam, and we're all born with the Adamic sin nature. Now the title for our lesson today is The Temptation of Man, and I use the word man generically because actually today's lesson on Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5, is the temptation of woman, the temptation of Eve. And as I said, we'll be looking at those uh, five verses, six, one, two, three, four, five, five verses, and we'll look at two divisions, the devil in Eden, and then the dialogue with evil. So as we begin our lesson this morning, let's look just at the first part of verse 1 for the devil in Eden. And then we'll talk about his descent to earth and his disguise in Eden. But let's just read Genesis 3, the first part of verse 1, where it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Just want to read right to there for now. As we open up our Bibles here to Genesis chapter 3, we find that everything all of a sudden is no longer very good. There's no explanation. We just find that suddenly there is a talking serpent there in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't tell us it's in the Garden of Eden, but we learn that from Ezekiel 28 verse 13, that he was in the garden in this scene. 
So suddenly here there is a talking serpent who is attempting to get the woman, who we're not told her name yet, but you all know her name, right? Eve. (laughs) He is trying to get Eve to doubt and to disobey God's word, and therefore he is obviously evil. I didn't read the whole verse, but maybe I should have, so you see what his statement is. He says, and and it says unto, he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. As we get into what all that means, he is obviously tempting Eve to do evil. So the serpent is evil. What happened to this perfectly good world that we had? Now, you know, as Christians, some of you may have been asked these questions. From time to time, a non-Christian will come to us and he will throw at us or she will ask us a two-part accusation. They may ask us, part one, why our God, who we say is so wise and he's so good and he's so loving, why would he create the devil? Have you ever had that question asked to you? Why in the world would he create the devil? And why, here's the second part of that question, that accusation, why if our God is so powerful and if he is so sovereign as we say that he is, then why doesn't he destroy the devil? Well, you know, the easiest way and the most biblical way to answer that two-part accusation is simply to say to that person, here's the questions, why did God create the devil and why doesn't he destroy him? Here's your answer. He didn't, but he will. He didn't create the devil, but he will destroy him. He's already been judged. He's just, his, his execution is just pending right now. But God did not create the devil. He created a supreme, angelic creature named Lucifer. So let's consider then Lucifer's descent from heaven to earth and how he became the devil. For this, you may want to flip over to Ezekiel chapter 28 and look at verses 12 to 19. And you may even want to put your finger in Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 19, and put your finger over in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. And if you're prone to mark your Bibles, you might want to even put a bracket around those verses somehow to remind yourself these are the verses which tell us about the fall of Satan. We are told in Ezekiel 28, 14, that Lucifer was the anointed cherub who covered the very throne of God. And this would mean that he was the highest created being in all of God's creation. The highest created being, okay? Not higher than Christ, because Christ is not created. Christ is eternal God. Well, Lucifer guarded the very holiness of God's throne. That's what this indicates. He was also, we are told, spectacular in his beauty, Because he was covered with every precious stone. You see that in verse 13 of Ezekiel 28. And it tells us in verse 15 that he was perfect in all his ways from the day of his creation until iniquity was found in him. Everything and every creature, whether it was angelic, human, or animal, everything which God had created was originally very good. Everything was perfect. So God did not create the devil. He created this marvelous anointing cherub, this super angel named Lucifer. It was Lucifer 
who self-made the devil. Because God gave both angelic creatures and human beings the freedom to choose to worship and serve and love him, because he doesn't want to be served and worshipped and loved by uh, robots who have no choice, because God gave angels and man freedom of choice, Lucifer made a choice. He had that freedom, and he made it. His heart was lifted up. Look at verse 17. His heart was lifted up because of his own magnificent beauty. And what did he do? He corrupted his wisdom by reason of his brightness. Even though God assured Lucifer that he, God, had created him, Lucifer's pride seems to have made him begin to doubt God, to doubt God's word. And he actually deceived himself into believing that he could actually become like God. In Isaiah 14, 14, now if you want to go over there, we are told of Lucifer's very arrogant words to himself when he said, I will be like the Most High. You see, evidently, Lucifer convinced himself that he and God were similar type beings. Perhaps, now this is speculation, but perhaps he reasoned with him, within himself that neither he nor God was really created, or were really created. Perhaps all the angels and God himself were merely the product of some unseen natural process. Perhaps Lucifer began to believe that somehow or another they all just developed or evolved from some pre-existing material or force and that it was merely by chance that God had preceded his own existence. If Lucifer truly believed that God had created him, and God did tell him that several times, you can read about it in, I don't remember which passage, if it's Ezekiel or Isaiah, but God told him that he had been created. If Lucifer really believed that, then how could he ever possibly think that he could rebel against him and sit upon his very throne? Well, maybe his pride was such that he did, you know, that he, a mere created being, did become so puffed up in his imagination that he actually came to think he could replace God, even as a created being, if he did believe God. Or perhaps, as I just suggested, maybe he actually did believe the same lie with which he has convinced so many people in our world. And that lie is the lie of evolutionism, that this complex universe has come into being by natural processes via some pre-existing material or energy. And that type of arrogant thinking disregards God's word. Perhaps Lucifer did the same thing, disregarding God's word that God said he created him and believed, no, maybe, you know, it was just by chance that God preceded me in existence. Humanistic thinking says, in effect, the same thing as Lucifer in Isaiah 14, where he said, I will be like the Most High God. That's exactly what humanistic thinking says. I will be like the Most High God, for I will rule my own existence, and I will do my own thing, and I will believe my own thoughts, regardless of what God's Word says, because really there is no God anyway who created me, and therefore no God to whom I am accountable. I just came about by chance, so why not do my own thing? 
Satan, who is called in the Bible the deceiver of the whole world, apparently deceived himself first and foremost because he actually convinced himself that he could exalt his own throne above the throne of God, Isaiah 14, 13. And he must have been very persuasive. It said he had great wisdom, magnificent wisdom. He must have been very persuasive in his little uh, arguments as to why he could replace God because he was able to persuade one-third of the angels to join him in his rebellious attitude toward God. And we learned about that when we studied Revelation 12. God, of course, can read the minds and the hearts of all of his created beings, and so he knew about the iniquity within Lucifer's heart the minute that the second that it lodged there. God knew about it. And so what did God do? Satan didn't even have a chance to rebel. God immediately just cast him to the ground, to earth. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said that he actually saw Satan fall, and how was it described? As as lightning. He saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. That's in Luke 10, 18. Christ was there. He saw this happen. And the angels who fell with Lucifer were also cast to the earth, and they are known today as demons or fallen angels. It may be that one of the factors which prefigured into Lucifer's rebellion was God's plan for man. Man was to be made uniquely in the image and likeness of God himself, and man, it's driving me crazy, they're falling again, and man was um, also given the privilege of reproducing himself. Lucifer and the angels shared in neither one of these blessings. And furthermore, the mighty angels of heaven were to be ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. If Lucifer began to have difficulty with his pride in serving God, then you can just imagine how much difficulty he would have in learning that he was to minister to man, whom he had probably watched God create out of the dust of the earth. And then, you know, as he would compare his own exquisite beauty covered with all of those precious stones and just as magnificent as he must have been, he, just, he compared his beauty to the beauty of Adam, who was made out of the dust of the earth, Lucifer may have reached his limit and determined that he would no longer submit himself to God. He may even have fostered some jealousy in his heart over God's tender concern for man and over all the effort that God had put forth in order to make everything so perfect and so ideal for man. At any rate, whatever the cause and whatever the circumstances may have been, Lucifer lifted up his heart against God with his five prideful I will statements. And those you can read about also in Isaiah 14, I think uh, verses 13 and 14. He says, first of all, I will ascend into heaven. In other words, he's saying, I will take over God's position and I will rule the universe. Secondly, he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Third, I will sit also upon, upon the mount of the congregation. In other words, he's saying, I'm, I will be honored and I will be praised and I will be worshipped by others. 
Fourth, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And fifth, I will be like the Most High God. And so, with those five wills, he fell. Pride cometh before destruction. <laughs> Lucifer, meaning his name meant star of the morning, became Satan, which means adversary. Lucifer self-made the devil. He was cast from heaven to earth. So sin did not originate here on earth. Where did sin originate? In heaven. And it originated with the most beautiful, most magnificent, most wise of all God's created beings. The fall of Satan had to have occurred time-wise after the creation of woman. Why? Because after God created woman, he said everything was very good. He also said in chapter 2, verse 1, all the hosts of heaven and earth were also very good. So this would include Lucifer. So he had to fall, uh, to, uh, fall after the creation of woman, and he had to have also fallen before the event which we read about here in chapter 3, verse 1. Because here he is fallen, he's on earth, and he's trying to tempt Eve. And so that's all we can really say is that he fell sometime after the creation of woman and before what we read in chapter 3, verse 1. So for the first time in the Bible, we meet the person of the devil. Very interesting that we first meet the devil in the third chapter from the beginning of the Bible. We're three chapters in, and there he is. And the last time we ever hear of him, we are three chapters from the end of the Bible when he's cast into the lake of fire. And we read about that when we studied Revelation 20, 10. That's the end of the old serpent. So I just thought that was interesting. Three chapters in and three chapters out. So we only have four chapters in our Bible without him <laughs> because he's on every single page in between. Maybe not his name, but he's there and his activities are there. Satan was certainly not happy about being cast from heaven to earth. And he was therefore even more determined than ever to fight against God. I mean, he didn't submit and repent and all that sort of thing. He's <laughs> no way. He hoped to yet make himself the king of the universe, which is still his plan. And he wants to establish a kingdom of his own that would war against and destroy God's kingdom. His name was changed to Satan, meaning adversary, because he became the great enemy of God and of God's people. Since God had just begun the human race, it was really a great time for Satan to corrupt humanity by causing the first male and the first female to disobey God. And therefore, Satan would not only corrupt them, but he would corrupt all their offspring. Because, uh, you know, as we know, we inherit this Adamic sin nature. So it was a great time, you know, just to get our first parents and then all their future descendants from there on would be born with a sin nature. Also, by getting them, he would usurp their dominion over this world. And, of course, it was through man's fall that Satan became the prince of this world, the god of this world, which was a claim that Satan did not, dis I mean, that Christ did not dispute when he was tempted in the wilderness and Satan offered the Lord all the, all the kingdoms of the world. Christ did not dispute the fact that he could have done that because he is the God of this world. 
Yet God, who is sovereign, never forget that. He's still on his throne, always has been. He is sovereign. He used Satan's rebellion and his temptation of man for his own divine purposes. You see, although man was created sinless and innocent, man was not created righteous. That sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? But righteousness is innocence which has been maintained. Oh, I spelled that wrong. I just realized innocence should be C-E at the end. Righteousness is innocence which has been maintained in the presence of temptation. Adam failed the test for righteousness because he succumbed to temptation. But the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, resisted fully all temptations. Not only there in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, but all the temptations that, were, um, that came his way during his whole life. And therefore, he proved his righteousness. So God used Satan's rebellion for his own purposes. Man had to be tempted in order to exercise his free will for God. Remember, man was perfectly innocent. He was perfectly sinless. And therefore, he had absolutely no idea whatsoever what temptation or sin even were. They weren't even in his vocabulary and had no idea what they were. Furthermore, man had perfect access to God and perfect fellowship with God. And so in his perfect state of sinlessness and innocence, there was no way that man was ever going to act against God. Therefore, in order for man to exercise his free will, something other than God telling Adam not to eat of a certain tree was needed was needed. The reason God permitted Satan to enter into the garden to tempt Eve was because temptation was needed for man to freely exercise his freedom of choice, to exercise his will for God or against God. Temptation was needed so that man could hopefully reject his own desires and choose instead to obey and follow God on, you know, in his own will and thereby be made righteous. Is that what happened? That is not what happened. You know, so man proved that he is not righteous and there is none righteous, no, not one except for the Lord Jesus Christ. But God did limit Satan Satan was only permitted to tempt Eve. He did not have the power to actually make Eve sin. Eve herself had to choose to sin, as did Adam. They exercised, therefore, their own free will by choosing to follow Satan rather than to obey God. And this, of course, again, was no shock to God Almighty, and he again use their disobedience for his own sovereign purposes, which was to primarily display his own grace and his mercy through his redemptive plan. It, he only could show his grace and his mercy, those attributes, by redeeming fallen man. Otherwise, he had no way to display his grace and his mercy. So when we come to the first verse of chapter 3, we are introduced to the serpent. 
And we are told later on in the scripture, we're told by Christ in John 8:44. We're told, told by the Apostle Paul in uh, several passages. And we're also told by John in Revelation 12, 9, for one, that the serpent is who? Who's the one we've been talking about? The serpent is none other than Satan. So there's no doubt about it. I mean, we know who the serpent is. His fall from his exalted position as guardian over God's throne had taken place by this time in Genesis 3.1. And by this time he had succeeded also in in, um, bringing one-third of all the angelic uh, created all the created angelic host with him in his rebellion. So the earth not only now has Satan, but all the demons, a third of the demons, well, a third of the angels, all the demons are now down on earth. And so Satan is going to use his persuasive, deceptive skills, which he's already exercised in heaven with one third of the angels. He's now going to use those skills on God's newest creation. And his newest creation was woman, right? Eve. And we're told here that the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. The word serpent in the Hebrew is the word nachash. Nachash. And it literally means shining, upright creature. So it's not, uh, this picture is inaccurate. The serpent didn't look like the way we think of serpents today. And the word subtle means wise or crafty or wily, you know, like the wiles of the devil. Being a spirit being, Satan either disguised himself as a shining beautiful serpent or he disguised himself in a beautiful shining serpent. And as I said, apparently this creature, if he disguised himself or if he was in an actual creature, Whichever way, it was totally different than from how we picture serpents today. And this disguised deception of Satan really shouldn't surprise us too much because some of his greatest works are accomplished when he transforms himself into an angel of light. That's like a shining, beautiful, upright creature, right? Satan still speaks as he has all the way from the very beginning. He still speaks and always has down through the ages through shining upright creatures through men and women who appear as angels of light as they appear as ministers of truth but they are really speaking the poisonous half truths and even the full lies of their father the devil so the devil had made his way into the perfect paradise of eden So let's consider next now his dialogue with Eve, which was her fatal dialogue with evil. So look with me at, um, well, I'm just going to read the whole passage right now, okay? Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. 
how much time elapsed between the sixth day of the creation week when Adam and Eve were both created and this dialogue here between Satan and Eve, we don't know. We do not know how much time elapsed. Thus, we also do not know how long the period of perfect fellowship between God and man was. We do know, however, that it had to be long enough for Satan's rebellion and his expulsion from heaven, and yet short enough for Adam and Eve to have not conceived any children. In fact, so little time may have elapsed that Adam and Eve had not even known each other in intimate sexual union. And the reason I say that is because the first time the Bible speaks of Adam knowing his wife, Eve, and you know in the scripture when it says a man knows his wife, it always speaks of sexual union. The first time the Bible tells us of this is in Genesis 4, verse 1 which was after the fall and after their expulsion from the garden. Also, there may have been so little time between the creation of Adam and Eve and this scene that we're reading about now that Eve was not even yet aware of the fact that animals don't speak. Only Adam, remember, had studied the um, animal kingdom when he named all the animals. But Eve had not had, she hadn't studied the animal kingdom. Otherwise, perhaps she may have been more on the alert when this serpent spoke to her. So we, all we actually do know is that at least one day, the seventh day of the creation week, the, the Sabbath day of rest, all we actually really know is that that one day had passed between Adam and Eve's creation and the serpent's dialogue with Eve. Now, more time could have elapsed, but it would seem strange that Adam did not know Eve within a relatively short period of time, or that Eve would not show some kind of shock that an animal spoke to her. Unless, of course, some of the animals before the flood were able to speak. So I throw that out to you. Maybe they could. I don't know. <laughs> I know there was a donkey that spoke in the Bible. So we just really don't know. We only know, we can only say for sure that one day passed. Now, as we consider the method of Satan's subtle temptation of Eve to get her to freely choose to disobey God's word and distrust God's character, we're going to look at four subdivisions. We're going to, first of all, see how Satan, speaking through the disguise of the beautiful shining serpent, first of all, how he fired doubt, uh, fired at Eve his wicked dart of doubt on God's word. He caused her to begin to doubt God's word. Secondly, we will learn how Eve responded to that with her own faulty distortions of God's word, how Satan then came back by flatly denying God's word and then followed that denial with a false depiction of God's character. Satan's approach to the woman was actually a masterpiece of effective, subtle temptation. He caught her, first of all, when she was alone, when she was apart from her husband, 
who could have counseled her and warned her and protected her from this strange talking serpent, which apparently stood upright on two legs, because that's what Nakash means, you know, shining upright creature. So apparently, whatever this serpent looked like in the beginning, he could stand upright, as opposed to all the other animals, which were quadrupeds, you know, they walked on four legs. He stood up on two legs, and this could mean he could look Eve, you know, right in the eye as he spoke to her. So Adam could have warned her. That was his position as a husband. He could have protected his wife, but there she was. She was alone. Satan, you see, knew better than to approach Adam because Adam had received the warning about not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um, directly from God. He had gotten that warning firsthand, but the woman had received her information how? Secondhand. She had gotten it from Adam. Furthermore, Satan knew that Adam had been made to rule over his wife. So the cunning, sly, crafty, wily devil purposely twisted God's order by beginning his temptation with Eve, thereby putting her, you see, in the place of headship, which was not her position. He put her in that position by engaging her in an intellectual discussion concerning right and wrong. And that should have been Adam's place. Satan also caught Eve when she was obviously um, somewhere close to the forbidden tree. Here's that one that somehow got all mixed up. There we go. She was obviously somewhere near the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So his strategy, you see, was superb in its timing. If this is the case, you know, we don't know exactly. A lot of this is speculation. But if this is the case, that she was close to that tree and maybe even thinking about it, and she was alone, his strategy, his timing was perfect. Eve, being perfectly innocent, would not have even imagined that it was possible to question God's word. And yet, this is precisely where Satan began. The first step in his temptation strategy involved the thought process, the thought processes of Eve. He began by attempting to get her to doubt God's word. He, you see, he raised a doubt in her mind when he asked her this question. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And at the same time that he was raising that doubt in her thought processes, he was also effectively stimulating her curiosity. And women are by nature curious, aren't they? So Satan's first approach in tempting mankind to sin against God was so successful. You know it was successful, don't you? Even though we haven't gotten to the end, you know that. He was so successful with it that he continues to use it to this very day. His first and foremost objective is to cast doubt on God's word. God's divine word. His favorite subtle question of all time, which is asked, you know, with just a tinge of sarcasm and with intellectual supremacy so as to make the one whom he is questioning feel rather foolish for taking God's word at face value. His favorite question is, yea, hath God said? He's used that on you, hasn't he? I mean, don't people say, oh, come on now. Did God really say what you're studying in that Genesis study? 
oh, come on, you can't be that inferior in your intellectual capacity that you would believe that, that there was really a literal Adam and Eve, that they literally took a fruit off a tree and that's where all this sin came from? (laughs) Has God said that? Come on, get with it. That's his little trick, and it works. It works very, very well. So in other words, he was saying, how do you know, Eve, that God really said this? So he began by tempting Eve to question the veracity of God's warning. Was it truly spoken by God? Are you sure that this was God that wrote this, that made this up? Well, there wasn't anything written, but are you sure God said it? Maybe Adam made it up. Maybe it's just the word of man. Did God really mean what he said? Maybe he did say it, but did he really mean that? Maybe it was symbolic. Maybe you should take it allegorically. It's just a figure of speech. And this is exactly how Satan operates today, isn't it? Same thing. He attempts at every opportunity with the help of all his demonic and human dupes to tempt people to deny the divine inspiration of the word of God. That's why on our cassette tapes, our verse for this scripture, for this Bible study is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, all, A-L-L, includes Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, all those that, you know, even the donkey talking, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every attack on the reliability and every attack on the truth of the scripture is merely a repetition. And remember this, it's just a repetition of Satan's age-old question Yay, hath God said. And so remember that. Don't be tempted like Eve was. Satan not only fired a dart at her thoughts about the authentic authorship of God's word, but he also thereby um, was successful in firing a a doubt about their authority, the authorship and the authority when he asked his question, but he was also challenging the accuracy. So the authorship the authority and the accuracy of God's word when he said, when he asked his question. He wanted Eve to start to doubt God's word and to think along some of the following lines of reasoning. Here they are. How do I know that God really said this? I wasn't there. Were we there when Jesus walked the earth? You know, same thing. I wasn't there. I only heard about it from man. I only heard about it from Adam. How do I know that what I heard is really an accurate translation of what was said? And come to think of it, why would God limit me so much? Why would he prevent me from, you know, eating from that one tree? Why is he making my life so narrow (laughs) and so rigid? Isn't that really intolerant of him? Oh, that Christian faith is so intolerant. How could he curb my personal liberties so much? So with his sin-twisted wisdom, see, he's wise, but it's a corrupt wisdom now. Satan was planting in Eve's mind the suggestive thoughts that she was missing out on something. You know, that God's commandment was just too restrictive, and therefore she was being denied some kind of fullness. Satan succeeded in planting a seed of doubt and a seed of discontentment in Eve's mind. You know, next to the divine members of the Trinity, Satan is the most brilliant being in the universe. 
he was more than a match for naive, innocent little Eve, except for one thing. Eve had a weapon. She only had one, but it was a good one. She had the Word of God. Whoops. As brief as the Word was in her day, it was very brief, you know, one little commandment there, yet it was enough to guide her. It was enough to keep her from evil and to deliver her from temptation. With the Word of God as her weapon, she could have been more than a match for her foe with all his wisdom. She still could have defeated him. Had she effectively used God's word, all of Satan's warped wisdom and his craftiness and his subtlety would have, uh, would have gotten him absolutely nowhere. Had Eve merely responded to Satan's every suggestion with the simple statement, Thus saith the Lord, and then repeated what he had said, just as the Lord Jesus had done in his wilderness temptation when he was tempted by Satan, she would have won the victory as the Lord Jesus won the victory. And yet, as we see by her response in verses 2 and 3, Eve mishandled the word of God. She took out her sword, yes, but she blunted its sharpness. In her response to the serpent, Eve actually pleased Satan because she mistakenly took that giant second step in his subtle temptation process. And what was that step? She dialogued with him. You don't dialogue with Satan. What do you do when he's around? Flee. Exactly. You resist the devil. You flee from him. He can outsmart you. You don't dialogue with him. He had already, unless you're going to get out that weapon and just say, Thus saith the Lord, and then leave. He had already succeeded in getting her to think for the first time ever about questioning God's word, which she never would have done on her own. But now he had succeeded in getting her to actually verbalize her thoughts. Any tempting... Any tempting thought that suggests we should question or disobey God's word should never even be entertained. You know, if that comes into your mind, just dismiss it and say, Get thee behind me, Satan, any time you start to doubt or question God's word. We cannot always avoid being tempted, but we can always flee from the temptation. Eve, at this point, should have definitely fled from the serpent to go find Adam. I mean, Satan had just questioned God's word. She shouldn't have stuck around. She should have said, hold the fort, I'm going to get my husband. Or better yet, she could have said, I'm going to go get God and hear directly from him what he said. But she didn't do that. She remained in a very dangerous place. She remained between Satan and the temptation. She remained between the serpent and the forbidden tree, and she attempted to correct the serpent. However, we find by her response that Satan's question had already, his first question, had already taken hold of her in the way that he had hoped it would, because she mishandles her sword. And she does so in two very serious ways, which effectively blunted its sharpness. She both subtracted from and she added to God's original words. Her misquote of God's word made God seem less generous and more demanding 
than he really is. First of all, Eve said to the serpent, look at the first phrase there in verse 2. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And in this little part of her quote from God's word, she actually omitted two words. She omitted the word every and she omitted the word freely. God had said, look back at Genesis 1.16. God had said that they could eat freely of every tree in the garden. Right? Every tree freely. And here she just says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Then in her words... And these are in verse 3. She said, her words, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. What did she add there? What words? Lest, yeah, lest ye touch it. God had never said anything about touching the fruit. He had only forbidden the eating of the fruit. So these alterations to God's of God's word tell us that Eve was beginning to feel restricted by God. Eve's response to Satan actually gives us some real insight into her thought processes. First of all, by omitting those two words, freely and every, she was limiting God's goodness. I mean, he had given them everything, all kinds of food to eat freely eat of every tree so she was limiting his goodness by just saying well we could eat of the trees and she was so this shows that she was no longer focused on God's uh, goodness on all that God had done for her she had already by way of just that one question from Satan she had already turned her thoughts from God's goodness and she was instead beginning to harbor thoughts which limited his goodness Secondly, by adding the little phrase, neither shall ye touch it, she was ladening onto God's prohibition. In other words, she was exaggerating God's restrictions. And this shows us that Eve was beginning to develop some resentment toward God's one restriction. Actually, it also indicates, in a way, it also indicates that she was actually beginning to think about touching the fruit. I mean, where did this come from, the touching of the fruit? Unless she was sort of thinking about that. She wasn't to eat it, but maybe she was thinking, well, I could just sort of reach out and feel it and touch it and see what it feels like in my hand. So her mind was beginning to succumb to the temptation, and she was already beginning to edge towards sin in her thoughts. Well, another thing that Eve did in her misquote of God's word was that she toned down the penalty of God's judgment. She lessened the penalty. God had said to Adam in the very strongest way possible, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Very firm and strong. But Eve's interpretation was now what? Look at the end of verse 3. Lest ye die. That shows an underjudgment of God's holiness with regard to punishing disobedience. So it appears here as though the devil was successful in causing Eve to lose her healthy fear of disobeying God's word. And he was successful in lessening her desire to obey God based on her love 
for him because of his love for her and his goodness to her. And many people today also fall into this same trap of Eve. They understress God's goodness and they exaggerate his restrictions, you know, and his limitations, and they lessen his penalty for sin, which is what? Hell. Oh, no, you don't want to talk about hell. I mean, how many pulpits across America do not want to talk about hell and don't talk about hell? So they want to lessen the penalty for sin. But the scripture tells us very clearly that unless you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to spend eternity in hell. So they underestimate what they're really doing is underestimating God's holiness. It's because he is a holy God that he cannot have anything unholy in his presence for all of eternity. And so the enemy uses the very same tactics today as he convinces men, especially those in pulpits, to doubt the reality of hell and eternal punishment. Now, there's one more thing to notice about Eve's response here. In Satan's question to her, he simply referred to God as God, which is the word uh, Elohim, when he said, Yea, hath God said. And this is, an, and he didn't use the word, words Lord God, Jehovah, Jehovah Elohim. And that's an indication of Satan's distance from God. And that's to be expected since at this point in time, Satan had already rebelled against God and he no longer would subject himself to God's lordship over him. However, what's interesting to notice is that Eve adopted Satan's language because she also merely referred to God as God which is Elohim, instead of Lord God. When she said, God has said, she didn't use what we've been reading about all through chapter 2. Lord God, the personal Jehovah Elohim. And this suggests that Eve is already moving slightly away from God and toward the serpent in her attitude. Well, the third step in the temptation process of Satan with Eve came in his next statement to her. And this is found in verse 4. And this is a statement which flatly denies God's word. What is it? He said, ye shall not surely die. Eve had made a number of very serious mistakes. She had been in a place where she should not have been, which was near to the forbidden tree, apparently even thinking about it. She had spoken to a person with whom she should not have spoken unless it was to respond accurately with God's word or to say, let me go get my husband, and he can tell you exactly what God said. And therefore, because she didn't do these things, because she didn't flee temptation when it began to get hold of her thoughts, she was in a position to then allow Satan to thrust his open lie his open, flat denial of God's word right into her ears. And her ears went straight to her, you know, mind and her thoughts. He said, ye shall not surely die. So the old devil flatly and directly contradicted God's words. God had said, thou shalt surely die. And Satan substituted instead his own words in God's words in, in their place. So it was an outright lie, wasn't it? And so deservedly he is called by Christ the father of lies. 
John 8, 44. Satan is the father. He's a murderer from the beginning, and he is the father of lies. Eve at this point now should have absolutely, when she heard Satan totally deny God's words by saying the exact opposite of what God had said, Eve should have turned on her heels and run just as fast and as far as she possibly could from that serpent. She should have reminded herself of God's words. She should have believed them and gotten out of there to find Adam. But as we see, Eve accepted Satan's lie. She chose to believe his word over God's word. And again, this same situation has occurred countless millions and millions of times throughout the succeeding generations ever since Eve. This is the principle, I mean, men have believed Satan's lies over God's truth. And this is exactly what we have here is the, uh, um, a principle which is illustrated to us in Matthew 13. You know, the first two parables, God sows forth his good seed. That's what he did with Adam and Eve, or with Adam. You know, he gave his good seed. Adam gave it to Eve. And that, of course, is his word. But just as soon as he sows out his good seed, the wicked one comes along. And here we find him right away. And he tries to snatch up. He tries to catch up that good seed. And far too often, he succeeds. And then, of course, what else does he do? In the second parable in Matthew 13, he counter, he sows, counter sows tares over God's good wheat. And his tares, which look like wheat, they look like true believers, but they're not. They help him in spreading his lies. It is just absolutely tragic how many people will refuse to believe the word of the living, holy, loving God and yet they will readily accept all kinds of strange lies, weird lies, from the evil one who cares absolutely nothing for them except to use them for his own sinister purposes against God. Now, what might have been some of Eve's thoughts in response to this outward lie, you shall not surely die? Which, by the way, you notice she did not... She didn't interrupt him here because he goes on and speaks in verse 5. She should have interrupted him right then. I mean, if she hadn't flown the coop, she should have gotten out of there. But she didn't interrupt him to correct him. She should have said, oh, wait a minute, that is not what God said. He said, ye shall surely die. But she doesn't even try to correct Satan this time. Well, what, are, what, might, be some, what might have been some of her thoughts? Well, maybe she thought to herself... Actually, the warning from God was given to Adam. It wasn't really given to me, at least not directly. So then the judgment, you know, since the warning wasn't given to me directly, perhaps the judgment or the penalty, if I am even to be judged, would surely be less than death. I mean, how could God expect me to, um, to know when it's coming secondhand through Adam? So certainly because it's come secondhand, he isn't going to judge me as strongly as he would judge Adam if he disobeyed. Or maybe she might have thought, God loves me too much to ever punish me in such a severe way as eternal death. Or she may have reason, too, that God surely would not condemn her and leave Adam without a wife and therefore make his own plans for the human race impossible. And she may have thought... As so many people do, God is love. 
God is love. He's so good that he won't ever send anybody to hell. I just know that he will forgive me. I'll just take one quick little bite. I mean, you know, God's grace and all. And then I'll immediately ask him for forgiveness. I know if I just succumb to the temptation this one little time, he certainly, I'll ask him for forgiveness and he'll forgive me and I know that he won't punish me. Or maybe she thought, this is such an insignificant thing. I mean, good gracious, one little fruit on a little tree. I'll just do it this one time, and I'm sure that God isn't going to be such a stickler for punishment for this one little itty-bitty little error. I mean, I'll only take even just one little tiny bite out of the fruit, and then I'll even hang it back up there. (laughs) You know, just one little sip of this alcohol, just one little puff of the cigarette, not that that sends you to hell, but temptation, that's how it is. You know, I just do it this one little, one little time. And besides, she might have thought, there's so much yet for me to do and to learn and to accomplish in my life, and there's so much yet for me to do to serve God. He needs me. <laughs> he surely won't get rid of me. He won't let me die. And yet we know that regardless of what her rationalization might have been, she was plain and simply <laughs> wrong. She was wrong. As the kids say, wrong. <laughs> she was wrong. She had been utterly deceived. She had fallen for Satan's lie instead of sticking with God's truth. But to make sure that she was fully hooked so that she would not back out, Satan added one last sentence to his malicious bait. And with these final words to Eve, he presented her with a false depiction of God's character. And what did he say? Let's look at it again. He said, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In this last statement, Satan was suggesting to Eve that God was actually despotically withholding something from she and Adam, which would be advantageous to them. He was maligning God's character by intimidating that God was withholding. You know, he was, he was keeping back from them something which was beneficial for them. Because they, you know, he didn't want them to learn too much and to become like gods. And the word there is Elohim, you know, to become actually like God. His implication was that God did not want them to become like himself. And this, of course, was the same temptation which had resulted in Satan's own downfall. He had tempted and he had deceived himself into thinking that he actually could become as Elohim. And it also proved, as we'll see next week, to be too much of a temptation for Eve as well. Actually, the minute that a person begins to question God's word or his sovereign goodness, that individual is setting himself up as his own God. For he is deciding for himself what the standards of truth and righteousness are. You know, when you go through God's word and say... um, Well, I don't believe this, but, you know, God's word contains truth. Not that it is truth, but it contains truth. And then, and this is what a lot of churches teach, a lot of ministers of the gospel 
quote unquote, will say that it just contains God truth, God's truth. Well, they're setting themselves up as God because then they're the ones who are going to say which is really God's word and which isn't, which is just man's words. And so that's exactly what they're doing, setting themselves up as God. The fourth temptation, the fourth step in the temptation process involves then personal fulfillment, thinking that you will be more fulfilled by yielding to the temptation that you will gain, you know, and you will benefit more by eating the forbidden fruit. When an individual has allowed himself to get this far with the suggestive and enticing thoughts, um, then it is very, very difficult for him to turn away from sin. The best time to turn away from sin is right at the beginning, isn't it? Right when it first tempts you, that's when you should flee. The longer you stay around, whatever you're toying with, whatever is tempting you, whatever it might be, it it will just get hold of your thought processes and you'll get to the point where you think that you're going to be missing out on some kind of personal fulfillment if you don't succumb to this temptation. So Satan put the suggestion into Eve's mind that she had a need which could not be met in any other way. He succeeded in getting her to think that the forbidden fruit would meet her need more than what God had given to her. In essence, this is what Satan was telling her. He was saying, you see, Eve, God knows that when you eat of this one particular tree, your needs are going to be met far more than he wants them to be met. He is really being selfish, Eve. Isn't that what he's saying? He's being selfish because he doesn't want you to be as wise as he is. He's not providing the very best for you, Eve, by withholding this one thing from you. He doesn't want your eyes to be opened. He wants you to remain in darkness. Total lie, isn't it? And he doesn't want you to know as much as he knows. He doesn't want you to reach your full potential because he doesn't want any competition. I know. Look what he did to me. Of course, he didn't say that. So Satan was dangling thoughts of power and strength and self-sufficiency and individuality and independence and of being the determiner of one's own destiny and fate, all these kinds of things before Eve's mind. He baited her with the promise that if she would believe his lie instead of God's word, she would be the one to benefit. She would gain because she would obtain a knowledge and a wisdom and a perspective which was previously denied to her. It was the same lie which is yet dangled before men in all kinds of different packaging. Same lie, different packages. Humanism, materialism, secularism, hedonism, Hinduism, New Ageism, agnosticism, atheism, all the same lie. Just different packages. The lie remains the same. Do your own thing. Do what you want to do when you want to do it. You're worth it. You deserve it. If it feels good, do it. Just do it. No fear. I hate those no fear things. Beginning of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you have no fear, you might as well say, I am a fool. You are your own God. You are the master of your own fate and the determiner of your own destiny. You're the captain of your own soul. Satan was telling Eve that she should determine, not 
God, she should determine what she should and should not do. She didn't even need to listen to Adam. See, it's a, how's it go? Adam's, Adam's rib, Satan's fib, and women's lib. (laughs) You don't even need to listen to Adam. And you certainly don't need to listen to God. He was telling her that she was intelligent enough to determine good from evil apart from God's word. She just needed to go ahead and do what she wanted. And by doing her own thing, she would then learn how to govern and direct her own life more effectively. The only way she could ever learn to choose the fullest life was to just go ahead and do what she wanted to do without someone else's restrictions telling her what she could and couldn't do. She could gain knowledge of uh, itself apart from God. She could, you know, she was intelligent enough to figure out her own knowledge. She didn't need God and his knowledge. And this was the end of Satan's temptation. This is all he needed to do. This was it. And we don't hear from him again in this dialogue. He had done his part. He had set his bait and Eve had taken the bait. She had been deceived. However, although Satan tempted her, she did sin by her own free choice. Actually, we will see when next week, Lord willing, when we get to verse 6, when we discuss verse 6, um, that she remained by the forbidden fruit. I don't know if she remained or she walked away and came back. Whatever the situation might be, she was there by the forbidden fruit even after Satan was no longer there or at least no longer talking with her. So she continued to gaze at it, at that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, until she gazed at it until its fruit looked so utterly delicious and beautiful and promising with regard to making her wise that she just could not resist it any longer. And this is what we will consider in the next lesson, along with the subsequent fall of Adam when we discuss the fall of man. This was the temptation of man. Next week will be the fall of man. In a very tragic way, part of Satan's promise was true. Their eyes were opened because they did come to know good and evil, but certainly not as gods or God. They came to know good and evil as sinful, fallen, mortal beings. You see, Satan is the great deceiver. He is the father of lies. Actually, some of his most effective deceptions are those which are half-truths. Because this was a half-truth, wasn't it? Your eyes shall be open. Oh yeah, they were open, but not as God's. So he does a lot of his most effective work with half-truths and distorted truths. On the other hand, the Lord Jesus Christ is completely truth, isn't he? He is truth, and he is the only truth. He cannot lie. Total opposite. So who should we listen to? I mean, big choice. You've got the liar on this side, and you've got truth on this side. Which one will you believe? I think I'll go for the truth. 